Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Chad Hutchinson, a partner at Arctos Partners, a private equity firm best known as the leading minority owner of professional sports franchises. Chad was one of only seven athletes since 1970 to play in both Major League Baseball and the National Football League. 
After his sports career ended, he started from scratch in finance and spent 15 years in private markets before joining Arctos and bringing his two careers together. We discussed Chad's journey to two professional sports, mindset and framework for success, transition and career in finance, blend of his two paths at Arctos, and interdisciplinary learnings across fields. Set all your assumptions about athletes and private equity managers aside as you listen to this incredible story of Chad's determination, humility, intelligence, and drive. Before we get going, this week, among the wonderful traditions that comes with Thanksgiving in the United States, is football. Thanksgiving football means different things to different people. For some, it's gathering with the family to root for or against the Dallas Cowboys. And if this were about 20 years ago, we could be rooting for or against Chad Hutchinson manning the quarterback slot. For others, it's thinking they're gathering to watch the Cowboys, but soon finding the tryptophan from their turkey has them fast asleep on the couch. And for still others, it means trying to recreate their athletic youth by gathering friends and family and playing football, with the best outcome for all, the avoidance of injury. However you choose to spend this Thursday, take a moment alongside your interpretation of football to share your thanks for the friends, family, and gifts in your lives. That daily practice of gratitude is one of the secrets to a happy life. As for me, I want to offer my thanks to you for engaging in all aspects of Capital Allocators that allows me to continue this incredibly fun journey. And of course, offer my thanks to you at this time each week for spreading the word about Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my conversation with Chad Hutchinson. Chad, great to see you. Great to see you. Bring me back to your childhood and how you go through the path to where you ended up. Wow, what a convoluted path it's been. So, grew up in San Diego. There's five of us kids in the Hutchinson family. Originally born in Boulder, Colorado. And my mom moved to San Diego when I was probably four or five and took three kids. And first time she left my dad. So, <laughs> a tough, challenging time. And then my dad came back into my life for a period of time. But by and large, my mom raised five kids by herself. And she was very faithful woman that just worked her tail off to provide. And so growing up, she's working a couple jobs. It was take care of yourself, kids. Here's the expectation I have for you academically. And that was the big piece that she pressed on is academics first. But I think all of us kids also looked at sports as a little bit of a way out for us. We had to learn how to survive. So I have a brother who I'm very close with that him and I just, whether it's find enough money to eat and how to get places, but we just learned how to survive as kids. What number were you in birth order? Second oldest. So older sister, myself, brother, and then two younger sisters. So your sports life has to start back then. How did that take shape through high school and into college? When I was five years old, I remember reading about Mickey Mantle and these baseball players. And I, I had this vision when I wanted to be a professional baseball player. That's when that started. And I have no idea why. It was just something I was like, this is cool. This is what I want to go do. We played organized sports, but we were not in club sports. We were in go survive sports. If it wasn't easy to get to, we didn't do it. 
And so my brother and I spent all day throwing, we used to wrap up socks with tape and play tape ball. And for me, sports was very much just this go have fun and just play pickup. I was a late bloomer. And so I was always a decent size, but then kids started to pass me up and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to grow. I really devoted myself to school because I just said, I love sports, but I don't know if I'm going to have a shot to do anything in sports. And my sophomore year in high school, I broke my hand and I went from six foot to six, five in a period of six months. I went from 160 pounds to 200 pounds and I had this big cast on my arm. And so during baseball season, I would throw batting practice with this cast on my left arm. And I got used to like just using my left side to help my arm come through. And when I got my cast off, I pitched a whole lot. I was always a shortstop. And I remember I hit 90 miles an hour as a sophomore on the radar gun. There was a scout out there. And I was like, oh my gosh, maybe <laughs> I got something here. That was the first time this vision of potentially what I could do began to take shape. Stepping back even further, I hadn't played football at all. And I played tackle football my freshman year and I was absolutely atrocious. So I was the fifth quarter quarterback, right? So there was four quarters in the game. And then the fifth quarter, they, for like eight minutes, they send out the scrubs. I couldn't even take a snap. That was football to me. But the minute I put a helmet on, shoulder pads on, was I all of a sudden was like, I love this game. I get to go hit somebody and take out this rage. This is an amazing game. But I was so bad that I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to continue playing. That summer, there was a guy named Ed Burke. He's one of my surrogate father's mentors. He's the varsity football coach. He came up to me and said, come up here every day. I'm going to put you to work, but I'm going to teach you how to play football. And it was the first time someone breathed hope and life in me and believed in me. He said, I think you can be a college quarterback. I was like, I can't even take a snap, let alone be a college quarterback. And so I did that. That's where football began to take shape. And so all through high school, and I did three varsity sports, I started to have success. I meet with Lee Steinberg into my junior year. He was this big agent, Jerry Maguire. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. I ended up getting drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the first round out of high school. And it was probably one of the hardest decisions because my mom's struggling financially. She's raising all the kids and no car. But she said, you will not go and play minor league baseball. You're going to go get your education. So it was like really pivotal. My advisor was Scott Boris. And Scott's like, Chad, you're a math guy. You love probabilities. Let's look at the probability of you actually making it up the big leagues out of high school. Let's look at the probability of you staying in the big leagues for a certain amount of time out of high school. I did the probability weighting. The odds are I should go to Stanford. I shouldn't go sign. So I say that. I show up at Stanford August 1st to go do football. And at that time, you had up until your first day of classes that you could sign still, not ruin your eligibility. So every day after practice, two-a-days, the Atlanta Braves would have a scout there. Chad, here's a million and a half dollars. You ready to come? I'd leave there. I'd be like, heck yeah, this sucks. Two-a-days, I'm in a red shirt. I should sign. So I'd, in that time, I'd call my mom from the payphone behind the service station at Sanford, and I'd be like, I want to go sign. She's like, nope, can't do it. Think about the next 50 years, not the next five years. So it was like a really pivotal moment. My mom just recalibrated for me. What's the bigger vision for your life? Which was probably the best decision I've ever made was just to go to Stanford. I mean, it changed the entire course of my life. So I have to ask this question. What was the third sport? Basketball was my first varsity sport. It's probably my favorite sport. 
but I realized very quickly, I was six five white guy. Maybe I could go play scrub division one, but yeah, I had a better chance than the other sports. <laughs> so take me through those years at Stanford and playing the two sports, getting your education, how that all came together. Freshman year, I redshirt football and I go out to baseball and we went to a bowl game for football and I show up January 4th and the coach Marcus and coach Stotts were like, Chad, you got 14 days until the start of the season. Just go out there and throw it as hard as you can. <laughs> Not much that we can tell you right now. And so it was one of those things where I just came in, ignorance is bliss. I just had a lot of confidence and I just said, I am going to outcompete everybody here. Very first night, we play against Cal State Northridge, and this is the Giambi and Katze, and they were one of the best teams in the country. And I come in Friday night, first game of the year, to close the game. A.J. Hinch was my catcher, and A.J.'s like, Chad, throw the ball through my chest. Throw it that hard. And I, that's what I did. And so my freshman year was pretty incredible in baseball. We ended up losing to Florida State, J.D. Drew hit a bomb off me in, in the regionals, but it was a tremendous year. And then the next year as a redshirt freshman in football, I ended up starting. Look, I didn't play in high school. I only started at quarterback my senior year. I was playing outside linebacker the rest of the time. And so I had one year under my belt as a redshirt freshman starting at Stanford. And the first three games, we were absolutely atrocious. And it was all freshman offensive line getting hammered. And then all of a sudden, we go down and play UCLA in the Rose Bowl. And we're fighting two minutes left in the game. We drive 90 yards down the field, throw a game-winning touchdown, and we beat UCLA in the Rose Bowl. And then we didn't lose another game the rest of that year. We beat SC, UCLA, Cal. We ended up beating Nick Saban, Michigan State, in the Sun Bowl 38 to nothing. Like, I didn't even play the fourth quarter. It was just this amazing ride. And this was my redshirt freshman year. And so things just started to click in football. And so then I go into my academic junior year and I'm sitting there going, this is the next chance I have to be drafted in baseball. I had a solid season in football, solid season in baseball, and then I ended up getting drafted by St. Louis Cardinals. It was just one of these inflection points where I watched my mom struggle and I just said, I needed to go take care of my mom, even though my heart was in football, but it was just the right time and place. And I felt just to call and just to take care of things at home. To what extent do you think in this nature versus nurture experience, how much of your ability to get to the pros was tied to your natural talent and how much of it was coaching along the way and learning the game, learning how to play? It's such a great question. So I am 6'5", 210, and my father was an amazing athlete. He played basketball and baseball at CU Boulder, and he played for the Philadelphia Phillies. So he was a really good athlete. And so there is a big piece of that that is just, I was born this way. But I also feel like from the earliest that I can remember, this drive to go succeed. Every minute of the day, I would go work on sports. I would just work, work, work. There was part of me that was like, I will outwork everybody here. And so I think it was a unique blend. And there was a lot of naysayers. Everybody said, in high school, you can't play three varsity sports. You can't play two sports in college. And then in pros, you can't play two sports in the pros. You can't do it. And so I always felt there's this huge chip on my shoulder that I will prove people wrong. Did you leave Stanford early then? I left after my junior year. Okay. So I still had two more years of football eligibility. And you go pitch for the Cardinals. So what was that experience like? Amazing highs and lows all wrapped into one year. I get drafted. I sign. 
the liberty of having some money. I think the first thing I did was I went and bought all the socks and underwear that I could ever imagine. <laughs> that was the coolest thing. I know that sounds weird, but, and my very first full year in pros, I still had this chip on my shoulder mindset of, I will prove everybody wrong. And I ended up double A, triple A, get called up to the big leagues my very first year. And I hadn't pitched a whole lot. I would show up and pitch at Stanford and I would just go compete. Didn't have enough time to work on the mechanics. I wasn't a pitcher. I was a thrower. I just was competitive. And I get up to the big leagues and I can remember the very first moment up there and I absolutely cracked, had a full anxiety attack. I'm sitting there, Mark McGuire, Willie McGee, Eric Davis, Bobby Bonilla. These are the guys that I idolized growing up and I'm on the same field with them. And I was not prepared for it, not whatsoever. So it was like this amazing high and low all within one year. And what happened from there? I get sent back down in the minor league. I struggle. I was never the same athlete from that point ever because of the mental side of it. It's one of these things where you lose, especially in games like baseball and golf, where it's such a confidence. It's so mental. I would see guys, wow, I've got so much more ability than them, but they have this ability to tune out the world and just do what they do and do it well and show up there not like process. I couldn't do that. I wasn't prepared to do that. And I hadn't built the foundation. I was there too quick. And when things started to fall down around me, I didn't have anything to fall back on. And I say that. I ended up going all the way back down to the minor leagues, but I made the big leagues. My third year, I led the spring training and strikeouts in the National League, started with St. Louis Cardinals. So I would get called up to the big leagues, but I never performed at the big leagues. Get called up, wouldn't do well, get sent back down. It was a daily battle for me just to go out there and compete. How do you think about that mentally? I mean, you described earlier this drive and persistence to be great, outwork everybody, and the confidence you get to Stanford barely having played these games that you could go do it. How did you deal with that mental challenge? I have built a framework of dealing with it over the last 20 years that I wish I had when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. The knowledge around how you actually prepare mentally is so much more pronounced now than it ever was. My agent hired a guy named Harvey Dorfman who wrote the mental game of baseball. Harvey was on my speed dial. I could call him at any hour that any would pick up. I was already behind. I hadn't set the framework and the rigor around that to actually be mentally trained to go at that level and compete. And so for him, he could only help me so much. Since in my life, I've realized there's a framework that you follow physically, mentally, spiritually, the rigor of that daily that I do now, that I wish I did back then. How do you describe that framework? Just like someone physically trains every day, there is a mental training every day. There's a lot of podcasts and books out now about it, but it's true. There's a practice of gratitude. There's a practice of what are your core values? There's a number of things I go through in the morning to say, here's what I'm grateful for. Here's the core values that are really important to me. And here's how I'm going to go take steps to achieve these today. I do things like neurofeedback. You train your brain. Everybody talks about meditation and mindfulness, but it's true. You got guys like Adam Grant and James Clear and some of their books that cognitive behavioral therapy. I implement these steps daily. And I know when I get off course, there's a certain program that helps me come back. James Clear talks about trigger, habit, response, reward. For me, where I get off track is anxiety. 
And there's triggers to trigger that. If I'm cognizant of that, there's a habit that comes out of that trigger. For in my life, it's control. And if I can recognize that when it happens, sometimes it's just breathing. And then sometimes it's like, okay, I can't control this. What can I control? Baseball's the worst. Like if you think about baseball, Harvey Dorfman said, when the ball leaves your hand, Chad, I want you to let go of it. It's out of your control. The only thing you control is your attitude and your effort. The steps that you take until the ball leaves your hand. So you're worried about the guy hitting a home run off. Was your attitude right? Was your effort right? I could never get there because to me, it was about the production. It was about the end goal. And so I think now in my life, especially with my kids, it's like, no, no, this is the journey. This is the process. This is about every day. How are you growing from your mistakes rather than having to be perfect? How are you actually learning and growing from this? You mentioned you understand your core values, articulating those yourself. What are those for you? And how did you get there? I love the Stoics. I think it's a hot topic today. And I love what Ryan Holiday talks about. I love all his books, Obstacles Away, Stillness is the Key. I think there's a lot of great practice in just the Stoic virtues, courage, justice, temperance, wisdom. I also overlay other things in there like resilience, love, humility. I write those down and there's times where I reflect on it and go like, all right, today, how can I show up and be courageous? How can I show up and have temperance and just be even keel and think about how can I have justice for those that don't have the same resources that I have? How am I wise in this? I love those principles. I have a strong faith as well. This idea of loving your neighbor. Sometimes when I'm not at my fullest, happiest self, I start to realize I'm thinking about myself way too much. And the idea of, all right, maybe I need to just go serve others right now. And how do I actually build up others? And the minute I do that, you're like, wow, what a gift I've been given because I'm like paying it forward. And that's the problem with sports. The whole world revolved around me when I was in sports. And the minute I actually pulled up and was like, no, no, it's not about me. It's about others. And I've had great mentors that have helped guide me through that and shepherd me. So I would say those are the virtues that I love to focus on. Those evolve and change. Every year, there's maybe a little something that I'm like, man, this is really something I want to work on. Like reading this great book right now on how do we equip ourselves and our kids with this idea that life is just change. This is a little bit of a stoic mindset. The only thing that is consistent is change. But how do you get comfortable with being uncomfortable? After your baseball career didn't quite have the success you wanted, at what point in time do you then say, oh, I'll just go play pro football? Every year while I was playing pro baseball, Jerry Angelo, who was the GM of the Chicago Bears, would call me. He'd always say, Chad, you ready to come back to the sport that you love? It's every year. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, I'm committed to baseball. No, I'm committed to baseball. And I get done with my third full year. So technically four years of baseball, 9-11 happened. And I remember sitting there going, life is so short. If I were to die tomorrow, what would I regret? And one of my regrets was football. I wanted to play football. I actually couldn't walk into the stadium when I left Stanford. I couldn't walk in and actually go to a game because it just hurt my soul so bad because I just loved it that much. And so that's what triggered it. I reached out to Scott Boris, who's my agent. And I said, I want to go to football. And he said, you're crazy. <laughs> he said, I'm renegotiating your contract with the St. Louis Cardinals. This is a guaranteed contract. You'll be set up for the rest of your life. You want to do what? He basically said, no way. So I eventually picked up the phone, called some teams. 30 days later, I held the workout. I had 25 teams out at this workout. So it was my own combine. 
The next day it was on the ESPN ticker on the bottom line. It says, Chad Hutchinson holds a workout. I get a call from Scott Boris. I was like, oh, I guess you're serious. He's like, good thing. You're the one guy that actually got my NFL license for to be your agent. I guess you're serious. I said, I'm serious. I said, this is time to go. I was a free agent. I thought I was going to go Kansas City Chiefs, maybe Houston, Chicago Bears. I meet Jerry Jones. I'm getting my physical. It comes walking in. I'm just like, this guy is so infectious and just amazing personality. The right contract terms. Monetarily was great. I also just love being around his energy. And so ended up signing with the Dallas Cowboys. What do you think you learned from your experience in baseball that translated over to football? I learned just to take the next step forward. Football was very different. It wasn't so mental. It was very reactionary. But I just learned, okay, I got to go every day and just take the next step forward. And what is that next step? Sometimes that is just, I need to go into the weight room and do these lifts. Instead of boiling the ocean in one day and say, oh, I got to be a starting quarterback and do all this, just take the next step. I think that was the biggest thing I brought to football. And so when I showed up at the Dallas Cowboys, I said, and this is a little bit of my personality is, I'm going to start this first year. It's been four years since I played football. And I said, I will start this first year. I just was that focused on it. And it was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me was I ended up starting most of my first year in the NFL, which I should have just held the clipboard for three years. And when we talk about build a foundation before you're ready to go, once again, I hadn't learned enough from baseball to be like, no, 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 let me just set the foundation. Let me just learn. I was in the weight room. I didn't leave. I would sleep there. I just said, I will be the starting quarterback. And so that was the drive that sometimes I would say works against me a little bit. One of the things we've talked about is those positions. You think about baseball pitcher, football quarterback, you think about the team leader, the extroverted guy, and that's not actually who you are. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on how you brought effectively an introverted personality to those roles. Well, here's the crazy part. I had a good buddy who came to me maybe seven or eight years ago and was like, Chad, you are the biggest introvert I know. And I had never thought of myself as an introvert, ever. And now that I've actually read The Power of Introverts, it's a great book. I gave it to my wife. She's like, wow, I actually now understand how you're thinking about things. When I've actually sat back and looked at how introverted I was, it was really hard for me to be in a position as a quarterback because I'm not a rah-rah, that feels very uncomfortable to me. I wish I had known that because then I could have channeled what was authentic to me. I was not being authentic to myself in all these positions. And I think there's a way to to do things that's authentic to who you are, that once you have that awareness of who you are, you can manage those things appropriately. And so for me, how I dealt with that though, how I overcame it was I was so competitive and I had this vision one of the things I've always thought of was I'm out here to help take care of my mom. That outweighed all the pressure. Everything was just this whole idea of I want to provide for my mom. When you talk about like purpose, purpose overcomes all these things. You have this clear vision and purpose of where you want to go. If you got this clear vision of what your why is, it's bigger than these other things that come against you. So you go, you're playing pro baseball, you're playing pro football. How do you get from there to finance? I was a voracious reader. That's the introversion part of me is I would just bring books everywhere. In minor league baseball, I'd read books upon books upon books. I remember reading Michael Lewis, Liar's Poker, and going, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. I was playing minor league baseball. And I said, I love math. I love complex problems. I love the competitive aspect of the trading floor. 
And so I always would read books. I'd educate myself. When I was in Chicago playing for the Bears, my neighbor worked on the Merck, Mercantile Exchange. So I'd go down there with him. And then he started high-frequency trading, spread trading, orange juice futures. And so I'd sit there with him. I began to just read everything. I took classes. I was like, I'm going to be a hedge fund manager. And I didn't really know what that was. I always had this feeling that this was something in my soul that was percolating that I wanted to go do. Dallas Cowboys, two years. Chicago Bears, two years. I was sitting on the sidelines. I got a couple calls. I just felt this calling. I'm 28. I know if I'm 32 going to be an analyst, that's too late. I feel like 28 is probably too late, but maybe I have a chance of getting an analyst job for one of these big private equity firms. And so when I left sports, I just interviewed my butt off, networked, and I ended up getting an analyst job. I was NFL quarterback one year, and then I was crunching spreadsheets, 100-hour work weeks, making coffee the next year, making no money. It was quite a transition, which I'm just thankful that when my wife met me, it was fun. I was Dallas Cowboy quarterback, and things were fun. And then all of a sudden, making no money, she never sees me. I was like, is this what you signed up for? So I'm grateful she stuck with me this long. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What have you found have been the real benefits of having been a professional athlete? Do you want the honesty? <laughs> <laughs> the benefit is you get access to people and things that you may not have gotten given what you've done. But the flip side of that is the other things that are probably negative, and I hate to say this, far outweigh what you actually get positive. I was trying to break into finance and the amount of comments from folks playing professional sports, you don't have what it takes. Or I talked about the selfishness. That's not a good quality. When things revolve around you, all the time. In professional sports, that's what it does. You're a rock star. When I think about my kids, I want them to be well-rounded, serve others. That's happiness. That's community. It breeds that rock star mentality. Or you have a very finite shelf life. And once that ends, what are you going to do with the next 40 years of your life? A lot of my friends struggle and they're struggling right now. Got to recreate yourself. There's a lot of things where you hope that they make enough money that they can just press the easy button. But even that, is that winning? Like I think some of the greatest tragedies I've seen in Silicon Valley is folks that peak when they're 35. So if you can just have this, I always call it the long obedience in the same direction. Peak when you're 80. That's where I envision myself is peaking when I'm 80, not when I'm 40 or 45. Because 
I've seen a lot of folks, it's just a slow journey down and it's sad. So what was that path in finance? I started as an analyst for a fund of funds. And one of the senior guys there was an old workout banker back in the oil bus in Oklahoma. And this was 2006, 2007. And I'm learning from him, staying late nights. He was super generous with his time. And it was late 2007. And he says, Chad, I've seen this once before in the 80s with this debt crisis. I was just a workout banker, so I didn't make real money. And I promised myself the next time I saw it coming, I was going to leave and go buy distressed assets and raise money around it. And he said, do you want to be my analyst? I have no idea what you're talking about. Distressed assets. <laughs> no idea what this is, but absolutely. And we left, we raised friends and family money. We started buying distressed assets, which was distressed debt out of these local banks. We ended up building a really nice business. We built a great team of young guys. We go fly down to Atlanta, Georgia. And when these banks were being taken over, we'd be right on the footsteps falling in behind them, going in and underwriting these loans, traveling around all these places. So we ended up buying 5,000 loans within a four-year time period and built a real nice business just underwriting distressed debt. I underwrote it. I managed it. I raised capital around it. So I got an amazing feedback loop on risk reward. I probably did 2,000 models of underwriting hard assets. You just get phenomenal texture for what risk reward is. But then the other part of it is I would go do the workouts on these loans. And I can viscerally remember we bought this loan. It was backed by this, this big knitting factory here in Williamsburg that had been renovated to apartments. And the guy that owned it had done it all without code. And he had this big loan that we had. And he came to me and he was like, I'll pay you off, but you got to say this. And I was like, no, we can't do that. We're your lender. The crazy part is I wake up a week later and this is our borrower. He had been killed. It was just a crazy feedback loop of all these stories of here's what you think finance is, but then you actually get down onto the real world of it. And you're like, wow, it is so much more art than science. It was a phenomenal view of human behavior how do you underwrite very complex assets? How do you underwrite the fact that when things go wrong, there's only so much protection that you can build into these type of instruments. Part of it is you just have to have good partners. So that to me was the most incredible feedback loop on investing. And through that entire process, I get to meet Alan Waxman. You hear about this guy, he lives a mile from me and all I kept hearing about was Alan Waxman. He was just anomalous. And I remember meeting with him, I saw him at a friend's birthday party. And I had been competing against him on these distressed debt deals. We had built it a big enough business that was, I was competing against TPG 6th Street. This is pretty cool. And Alan comes to me and goes, Chad, what are you doing? Oh, I've got my own business. He's like, no, no, come join the rocket ship that I'm building here at TPG 6th Street. I started talking to him in 2012, three years old. And the more I got to know him and just see his vision of where he was going, this is the guy I want to go work with. So I ended up leaving on what I had built and I joined TPG 6th Street, but I needed that. I needed a blue chip credentializing business firm where I could say I went and competed at the highest level. So you go from sourcing all these thousands of small loans to Sixth Street. How'd you spend your time in your year, sir? So when I got there, the beauty of what Alan has built is he gives you a ton of freedom because their motto is, and Brian Darcy will appreciate this, they're an omnivorous vehicle that can price any risk. That's how they pitch it. And that's what they've built. They built a business that is mimicking the balance sheet of the special situations group at Goldman Sachs. Price any risk, up and down the capital structure. Now, obviously with a mindset, but we'll price through control equity. 
I was still working on some of these small balance loan deals, but that was starting to dry up. Spreads were compressing considerably. We chased some distressed credit down to Puerto Rico. We did some stuff in Italy, but I sat back and was like, oh boy, what am I going to do here? It's not like you're spoon fed. Oh, here's a good business unit. I'd like to say my time at Sixth Street was about just being commercial and realizing that there's a ton of white space out there and we had very flexible capital. And I just had to go create thematics that were interesting and price the risk accordingly. And so I was able to work on a lot of stuff. I worked on 2016 oil and gas cracks. And we went and set up a Drillco JV with the legacy down in the Permian Basin. I didn't know anything, but I had connections at the family office there. We ended up building a business within Sixth Street. It was an agriculture business. So in 2013, when I joined, you're middle of big drought in California. And I was sitting there going, this is a dislocation. Sixth Street is built for dislocations. How do we go take advantage of this dislocation? Sitting back, you say water is the currency, how you monetize that. And you monetize it through the crops. Now, what's the playbook to do that? Well, ag is a hyper-local game. So how do you get hyper-local and make smart decisions? When I left there, we probably had 12 joint ventures with hyper-local folks that were capital constrained, but they understood agriculture. We would go form JVs and then we would go roll up assets. When I left, we were one of the largest avocado growers in the US. We had the largest contiguous organic farm in the United States, 35,000 acres where we constructed a really interesting offtake agreement with General Mills. One of a kind offtake agreement. General Mills had never done anything like this before, but they wanted to control their organic spring wheat for their Andes pasta brand. And we were able to help them do that. And so we had all these joint ventures. And so we built this within Sixth Street and then we ended up raising a dedicated ag fund. We brought in real institutional investors. A bulk of my time was spent there, but then I would also just be commercial when things would arise. Middle of COVID, week one into COVID, Airbnb, no one of the board members there calls me. and was like, hey, would you guys be interested in doing a Spotify type deal? And we had to do this interesting convertible facility with Spotify. Absolutely. When you have that broad of a remit, you say pricing risk is one thing, but how do you think about targeting risk reward and what makes for a great opportunity for where you want to deploy your capital? I'll start with Alan Waxman. When you think about it, what Alan's superpower is, there's a lot, but like here's two that really stand out for me. Number one is vision of where he wants to go is just incredible. He's just got a vision for things and he makes it happen. Second is he taught me the value of understanding the why in every circumstance. There has to be a why for capital to come in. There has to be a real catalyst for private equity capital to come into a deal, especially in a firm like Six Street. We attack dislocations. So we'll come into a dislocation. That dislocation may be for three months. It may be for two years. But we will attack the dislocation until the dislocation dries up. And then we move to the next dislocation. And so for Alan, I used to hear him sit in a meeting. He may have known nothing about this type of healthcare royalty. But within 10 minutes, he navigates to the why of the situation, why we're relevant, why there's a need for our capital. And then he can also suss out with that counterparty, is this person telling me the truth? It showed me the power of, he would almost disarm through his humility. He would sit there in a meeting and be like, I know nothing about this. Tell me about it. And through his questioning within 10 minutes, someone had either dug their grave or made the case for it being a, an attractive investment. I just learned a ton just sitting there and watch him navigate that. When you can catalyze that idea of why this capital is relevant, why do they need you? Are they just looking for dumb money? We're done here. We're out. But hey, they have a death, divorce, there's a number of different situations there. That's when you identify that. Now, 
it takes bringing in this knowledge set of seeing so many transactions to be able to say, look, my downside case is I lose 20%. My upside case is a 1-4. Understanding that frame of, okay, this is worth it. That's just by seeing thousands of deals. And at Sixth Street, we underwrote the entire market. That's the cool part about that business. So after some period of time there, you make a move or a move comes to you. Why don't you describe your thinking in exiting Sixth Street? Somewhat professional and somewhat personal here. And middle of COVID, I had been commuting up to the San Francisco and I have three kids and I take being a father very seriously. And I realized I was not present. I was working a lot. I'd have to drive three hours a day. And so COVID happens and I'm sitting there every day with my kids. I realized I needed to be a better dad. The first part was I wanted to be present with my kids and commuting every day and doing what I was doing. Just, I couldn't do it. When you pick your head up to that and being like, all right, then what's the solution? And it's amazing what life brings back to you when you start asking the questions. And so in the middle of that saying, all right, well, maybe I need to start looking at something else. You know, what is the next adventure? What's the next growth time period for me? There was a number of things came up. In the midst of that, one of my good friends buys an NBA team and he asked me to come run their holding company because he's like, we want to build this into what Fenway Sports Group has done. We want to build this huge platform. We need you to come help us do that. I start putting together the business plan, start looking at who's in the ecosystem of sport right now. And this was right as institutional capital is being allowed into the major sports leagues. Well, I'm introduced to Ian Charles and Doc O'Connor. And I would say the first thing was just talking to them on a personal level. I didn't talk about sport. I just talked about what is their value system? What do they want to build? What learnings have they had? I mean, Ian's got such amazing learnings of, of dealing with GPs. He's like, I have 15 years of learnings of how to do this thing and build a firm that is... Simon Sinek, infinite, this thing that perpetuates. I'm going to structure it this way. And so that to me, I love that. And then you meet Doc O'Connor, who's like, I've been an operator. I've sat in here. I've built businesses. He's not coming from an investor mindset. He's actually coming from a, I call it squishy. I appreciate it because it's very different than as an investor, how you think. And I think the marriage of that for me between Doc O'Connor and Ian Charles was really special, powerful. And then you overlay the fact that it's sport. And oh, by the way, they're the one group that can go invest in four of the five big five leagues here in North America and sit across platforms and leagues and help these teams like the Utah Jazz build their version of this platform in Utah and the Rockies. And so at that point, I started talking to Ian and Ian is a persistent, I mean, he (laughs) called me every day for four months. And I was like, there's no way I'm moving down to Dallas, Texas. I'm here in Menlo Park, California. I got three kids. I've got great friends. This is home. You take little steps forward, little step forward, little step forward, and all of a sudden the door swings wide open. You're like, all right, this is it. When I knew it was it, within a month, we were moved down to Dallas, Texas and joined Arctos. And I tell you what, private equity, honestly, they're great investors, but it's not of the mindset oftentimes to build like everlasting organizations. And to be a part of a firm that is like that from day one, that has been part of the mindset. How do we pass this on? How do we pay it forward? How do we take care of our young folks? And not to say other private equity firms don't do that, but like that is so critical to how we think here. It's just been amazing to be a part of. So you bring in this unique experience of the athlete in professional sports and then a couple of decades in the trenches in finance. How did you plug in to 
figure out what your role is going to be at Arctos. I learned at Sixth Street, you get in where you fit in. Sometimes you just create your own narrative. And so day one, I just said, I had confidence in the foundation that I had built at Sixth Street to know that I can go build themes and invest really well around those themes and build a real business here. I had a network in the sports ecosystem. That was one of the benefits. I actually didn't have to go create a network like I did in agriculture. I knew no farmers. But in sports, I could walk into the DeWitts in St. Louis. I had this pretty robust network already, which was nice. And then I just said, okay, where is the white space? Where can we be helpful? What are the other things? And hearkening back to the Sixth Street, there's a growth equity platform. There's an ag platform. There's an infrastructure platform. There's a BDC. They've built businesses that are just on the adjacencies. Part of what my vision is here is we own the IP the very first time institutions can own the IP of these teams. And there's so many adjacencies that we can go add value to and invest alongside. I'm spending a ton of time there. Last three deals we've done. It's category killer deals where we can bring our teams alongside us, invest in the business to help the flywheel of that business and these teams. It's a perpetuating flywheel here. So it's a business like SeatGeek, ticketing business. They're disrupting ticketing, really interesting IP around it. So I sit on the board of SeatGeek. There's a company called Elevate Sports Ventures, Al Guido, where they're coming in. They're super helpful to us as we go in and underwrite these sports teams. When you sit there and go, this stadium is under-monetized. Your suites, they're bottom quartile, and here's why. And here's the money you need to spend to bring this up to speed. And here's what your ticketing prices should reflect to actually have that flow to your bottom line. So that's the type of business we'll invest in. I'll sit on board there. We just invested in a company called GeoComply. They do all the back-end geo compliance for the sports betting platforms. So every time you go on and want to make a bet on FanDuel, they are the geo tracker here. In every state, this is very, very valuable architecture that they're incredibly important to that ecosystem. But they also need access to California, Texas, and Florida, which are not legalized sports betting yet. Well, we have quite a few teams in those states that are part of our portfolio. So we can be very helpful to them. So those are the type of situations that we're going to come in and invest our fund dollars into help these businesses, and then our teams come alongside us and co-invest in these businesses as well. You're starting with teams, and there are these adjacencies that could become some type of vertical. Where's your mind today on building that out? My mind today is we have a right to win in these core North American sports teams, and we're going to continue to build on that. That is, first and foremost, NBA, MLB, MLS, NHL, cross my fingers, NFL. We have a right to win we have the right capital. We have 17 operating advisors. We built an operating platform. We have a playbook that we can roll out and diagnose the business of sport for these teams to say, here's where you're lacking or here's where you're spiking. Here's how you need to start to think about your digital. TJ Adeshola, we have Theo Epstein, who's one of our operating partners. We've built the infrastructure to help these teams grow and build their businesses. So that's our right to win. I spend 80% of my time there. As a firm, that's where we spend 80% of our time. The other bucket, I do think that there's a growth equity business that we can roll off on the side of this. But you know, that's going to take some time here. If we do three to four really solid category killer deals a year in this innovation sector, you wake up in three or four years and you got a real portfolio there. Most of my time is realizing where you have that right to win and attacking it. I'd love to hear some about the crossover of your experiences. We touched on baseball and football, but in sports and this diversified investing, and now this diversified investing into sports investing. 
What lessons have you learned along the way where you've seen it's some degree of interdisciplinary learning across these different fields? 100%. There's so much. And I tell young folks now, you got to build your foundation. But once you build the foundation, you can then begin to implement some of these other learnings from your past lives to actually help you on the investing side. Understanding human behavior that you learn in sport when there's pressure, when it comes down to crunch time, how are people going to behave when you're financially not doing very well? How are you going to view partnership? How are you going to view alignment? How are you going to view risk? How are you going to view probability of these things occurring? So I think there's so many different learnings that you can play because the easy part now and the challenge for, I think, young folks as they come up in finance is they learn all the rote skills. Everybody knows how to model. You learn all these rote skills, but now it's the texture, it's the art, it's the subjective. It's all the squishy stuff around the edges that is actually what makes great investors. I do think that when you bring in team sports and you bring in rigor and discipline of sport, that's the other piece is like, I know that I will, my wife gets on me, I will cycle every day. That's just part of what I do. It's a non-negotiable. And I think that in investing, there's a certain rigor and discipline. You got to show up every day and stick to the game plan. Because the minute you drift and have strategy drift and have discipline drift, that's when you get hurt. It's a mixture of those things where you can bring in the EQ from these past lives and also you bring in the discipline of like the sports background. So as you look out over the next couple of years, what do you have in store? I am so fired up at what we're building here on the sports side. I'm confident we'll have another 20 teams in that portfolio. But the thing that I, I'm most proud of and most excited about is just, I am seeing the tangible efforts of the value that we're creating for our teams. That's just business. When you think about sports, sports is hope, sports is community, sports is all these other things that are meaningful to me. That's what sport is. So I can sit in my seat and go, if I can help this be an everlasting infinite enterprise that is really a thriving business, ultimately that impacts everybody in that community. It impacts all those people that are wanting to be professional athletes. Some of these organizations have 500 people that impacts so many people. And so if I feel like I can make that impact, pay it forward, serve others, obviously great returns for our investors, that's where we're going to go. So I think what we've built here is this amazing sports investment franchise. I'd love to turn to a little section called Lessons from Others and hear what are some of the things that you've learned from others, whether it be coaches, fellow athletes, investors along the way, two or three people that you learned something about investing from? I'm going to highlight three people, and they're from three different parts of my life. The first one is the coach I mentioned, Ed Burke, who is one of the most influential people in my life. I would not be here today if it weren't for Ed. Ed shepherded me, and, and one of the things he always used to say, and it's actually a really cool speech that's on YouTube too, it's called Last Play. When I'm down, I go listen to his speech. It's in the locker room, Torrey Pines High School. And he would always tell me, he's like, Chad, if this is your last play, how do you want to be remembered? That's the crux of what he would always say. If this is your last day, your last play, how are you going to go out? I tell myself that daily, this little memento mori. If you're going to die tomorrow, how are you going to be remembered? Being cognizant of your own morality is a very important lesson that I've learned. And as I age here, it gets more and more important. So that's number one. Number two, there's a guy named Curtis Feeney, one of my best friends to this day, very, very successful investor. He ran all Stanford management companies, alternative assets, ran a successful venture fund for 20 years, sits on a bunch of boards now. He teaches me so much weekly. I remember 
I was in the midst of grinding it out at that company, buying distressed assets and things weren't going very well. We were having trouble raising money. He's like, he said, Chad, the problem with you is you've always had options. When baseball wasn't going well, you had football. When football wasn't going well, you had baseball. When both sports weren't going well, oh, I, I'll go get a job. And he said, Chad, sometimes you just got to sit in the shit. To this day, I tell myself that when things aren't going well, to realize sometimes you just got to sit in it. You know, people don't want to hear that. They want an exit. They want an escape clause. They want a quick fix. And I think it's just very valuable. Whoever said it, the darkest hour is minutes away from the sunrise. You never know on the next turn where things are going to turn in your favor. But if you don't sit in it, you're never going to have that option. I would just say Alan Waxman taught me a lot. It's the power of questions. The way he can unpack the why in investing through great questions. If you're an investor and you want to be an investor, it's like understand the why. Also understanding your own why of what is your duration? Like is your duration matched with the expectation of that asset? Today's day and age, that's what gets called out more often than not is a duration mismatch. All right, Chad, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Definitely cycling. This is part of the rigor and on the physical side. Every year I set this goal in cycling of how many miles I want to ride, which often entails I have to ride every day to achieve that goal. And so for me, if it's not my family or my work, I'm on my bike. When did you start cycling? This is another Alan Waxman. He got me into this probably six years ago. It's one of those things that when you're on a bike, you're processing the day. For me, it's meditation on wheels. It's the closest thing I've had to this fulfillment of achievement on a physical side, that was the hardest part. What's the scoreboard in business? Because oftentimes it's very anomalous because I don't love putting money, my own bank account as a scoreboard. So what's the scoreboard in business? So it's hard to have a scoreboard in life sometimes. Whereas I know if I ride 30 miles, there's my scoreboard. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? Now they do after listening to this podcast is when I tell people I'm a massive introvert, they just are blown away because I can play extrovert. When I get home on the weekends, I don't speak all weekend. I don't speak at all because <laughs> I'm tapped. I have nothing left. And so I say like, that's a real surprise when folks hear that I'm a massive introvert. What's your biggest pet peeve? When someone's inauthentic to who they are. I tell my kids all the time, like they are special just being who they are. When you're around people that try so hard to be something that they're not, and it's no fault to them, but you just want to grab them and just be like, just be you. And that's good enough. What's the best advice you ever received? Another good friend of mine, his name is Cy France, very successful entrepreneur in Menlo Park. He grabbed me one day, I was really struggling. He's like, Chad, you need to hold life loosely. I realized that oftentimes I strangle life just trying to control everything. This feeling of God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. And I think the idea of having serenity just of acceptance was absolutely phenomenal advice. I mean, I think about that every day. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My mom, by far. I mean, that's two people right there. She is such a powerhouse. To this day, she's 74. She still runs her own fitness training business. She just retired from the middle school. Her vision for where she wants to go still at this age and what she wants to impact is just amazing. Just her ability to endure and suffer well and to raise five kids the best she could with very little financial resources. And then I've mentioned Ed Burke and Curtis Feeney and Alan. 
I've just been blessed with phenomenal mentors that I've really reached out and sought those mentors. But I mean, I even Doc O'Connor and Ian Charles, just been incredibly blessed. All right, Chad, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? You don't have to be perfect. Every experience is a learning experience. And as long as you take the right mindset around that experience as growing from it, that's the win, not the outcome. It's not the outcome. It's the journey. Great. Chad, thanks so much for sharing your incredible story. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.